The Masterclass podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Bunurong people. We recognize First Nations people as the original owners and custodians of the lands and waterways across the Australian continent. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Every story that you do, you need to talk to people. And I think that's what separates the work of an opinion writer compared to the work of a journalist who is reporting on news. My boss was really scary and they were just like, go and find someone to talk to who's there. And I was like, how am I meant to do that? You know, everybody's in the sea. It's broadening this remit of interviewing from just a, a Q&A to the groundwork that happens before. And that's not just about writing up questions. It's about developing a rapport with your interview subject. If someone says they don't want to be interviewed, when do you push and when do you just kind of let it go? I'm persistent. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are persistent. That's why you work for us. I'm Julia Bergen, a reporter based in Mbantua, Alice Springs, and the former Northern Territory correspondent for Cracky. In this episode, I'm going to give you a masterclass in finding interviewees. Hello, and welcome to season three of the Masterclass podcast. I'm Louisa Lim, and I teach audio journalism and podcasting at the University of Melbourne. Every week, we're speaking to a master of journalism to talk about one aspect of their work. Today, we're hearing from Julia Bergen, who's also one of my former students at the University of Melbourne, who did intro to text and audio journalism. Julia, I know how good you are at finding interviewees because you worked as a researcher for our other podcast, The Little Red Podcast, for a while. But I mean... Let us behind the scenes. How long does it take to find the right interviewees for a story? I mean, it really depends on the story that you're working on. The way that I tend to approach a story up here is the idea that people kind of make that story. So it's very rare that I'll actually have a piece in mind and then try and get interviewees to fit into that story. Often it'll just be conversations that I have with people. I find stories on the back of that and then I see who else I need to talk to. I mean, let's talk about that process. How early on do you start thinking about who to interview or what story to use an interviewee for? I think every story that you do, you need to talk to people. And I think that's what separates the work of an opinion writer compared to the work of a journalist who is reporting on news. It's not your voice that you're meant to be featuring. It's the voices and opinions of other people. If you're telling somebody else's story, then that voice needs to ring loud and clear in it. If you're talking about an issue or something that's happened, then you need to go to people from reputable organizations, people who work in that space on the ground, who can talk to that and who have an authority to speak to that. And without that, you don't really have much of a story. And I think that's perhaps one of the pitfalls of journalism these days is that Sometimes it does rest on stories that don't have the voices that should be included in it. And, and I think by virtue of being in Alice Springs here and the Northern Territory more broadly, like that is incredibly important because too often there are stories that are written about, you know, Indigenous lives or about people who are living here and it doesn't include those voices that it really needs to. And I mean, you've worked in all kinds of places, including in Japan and elsewhere, have you had to kind of shift the methods that you use to find interviewees and to talk to people depending on where you are? Um, I think they're quite transferable. So 
The best advice that I ever got on finding an interviewee and building a contact was actually when I got here. And I arrived in Alice Springs around the time there was a few controversies going on. There was the kind of Peter Dutton media caravan that was taking place. And there was also a lot of controversy going on with the AFL. And I was doing a story on that. And I went in kind of armed with questions, ready to ask this source about all sorts of political things. And I just sat down in the chair and he took one look at me and he said, nah, you tell me a story. And it was this very kind of wild realization that you don't have to have this kind of formal divide between interviewer and interviewee. And you can actually get much better interviews with people if you're willing to give them time to have conversations, to sort of do the preparatory work before you slide into a kind of more of a formal Q&A. So I, I get, yeah, I guess it's broadening this remit of interviewing from just a, a Q&A to the groundwork that happens before. And that's not just about writing up questions. It's about developing a rapport with your interview subject, regardless of who they are. And then in the aftermath, sort of following up as well. Yeah, often it is the case that, you know, you want to go back to people over and over again. And if you just do an interview and never even send them the story or check in afterwards or whatever, people, I guess they feel a bit exploited. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, like even... Like prior to doing um, things in the Northern Territory for Crikey, I was there, science reporter. And I feel like scientists more than anything, this is a, a somewhere where you really have to develop that rapport because often these researchers have dedicated their entire life to a very particular topic. And there's a kind of common conception that when a journalist comes in and, uh, you know, wants to report on something, they're not going to get it right. They're going to miss details. They're going to try and simplify something down to a level that is not doing the research justice. And I think, you know, I've done an, a number of stories before with scientists where you got to give them the time of day. You got to, you know, that interview might be 40 minutes long, which most people would balk at, but you allow them to talk through things. You ask those questions. It's about doing it in a way where, yeah, they feel like the topic that they are fixated on and have dedicated so much time to is going to be given that appropriate airtime. And it's the same thing if you have somebody who comes to you with a story, whether it's about trauma, whether it's about something really personal. I think interview subjects want to feel as if they've been given the time of day to be able to tell that story in their way and that you're not editorializing it too much. An example of this is when I very first got to Alice Springs, uh, one of the, in fact, the first story that I did was the traditional owners here launched their own night patrol. And I went out with them for the first two nights and I was very fresh to town. So I was learning huge amounts on the go. And basically what I did is I went down a couple of hours early and I set up camp at Lerotopa, which is the traditional owner organization here. And I just watched and waited as everyone came in through the door and they got their t-shirts. And I think as an interviewer as well, there's a lot of merit in being quiet and asking no questions and just observing sometimes uh, because you'll often then find those questions that you need to ask. And then I sort of started up conversations with various people. I didn't throw a microphone in their face or I didn't hit them with questions. I had a chat to them and I went back the second night and helped develop those relationships kind of again and deepen them. And then it wasn't until sort of after that that I proposed the idea of actually doing a formal interview to people, you know, drawing on the conversations that we'd had informally. 
And from that, you get these really beautiful telling details that people are willing to share with you, much more so than if you just go in and say, I got 10 minutes, I got to get out of here. But for a student who needs to write a news story and they need to find people to interview, how do you kind of recommend going about that? How many people, for example, you know, would you tend to reach out to, you know, when you were kind of doing that sort of daily news kind of thing? It depends what your deadline is. But I always try and go out to more people. And then if those people come back too late or you get too many people coming back, just being honest with them and saying, I've spoken to X amount of experts, but great to be in contact, uh, looking forward to working with you on a future story, that sort of thing. But in terms of finding those contacts, I will often go through, I mean, universities are a really good place to start. So going on a platform like The Conversation, for example, um, and you can have a look through there and find which researchers have written on which particular topics. That's a really good way of doing it. Alternatively, always going to someone in government can be a good thing to do. You're not necessarily going to get an interesting answer from a politician. That said, there are certain politicians who are much more willing to say something straight and how it is. So that can be a really good one as well. Otherwise, for example, coming to Alice Springs, one of the first things I did here is just look at all of the different organizations that exist in a particular place. And, you know, you reach out to them for a particular topic. And if they come back and they say, no, not interested in talking, to you on this, or I can't talk to this, or this is not my area of expertise, you're more than likely going to get a recommendation from them about someone else. And you can ask them, just be like, no worries that you can't speak to me right now, but who would you recommend that would be a good person to speak on this? So you're kind of dancing around a little bit, talking to, to lots of different people. And more often than not, you do get someone who comes back and is willing to talk to you, you know, by that deadline. Sometimes you don't, sometimes the story flops, and that's also okay. Do you have a specific example that you can give of a kind of a really, a really good get? I mean, I'm thinking in in my case, the one example that I always think of is my very first shift ever at the BBC. It was the year that the Sydney to Hobart yacht race was a real disaster and all these boats were being shipwrecked. People were washing ashore. It was a terrible disaster. And my boss was really scary and they were just like, go and find someone to talk to who's there. And I was like, how am I meant to do that? You know, everybody's in the sea. I, you know, I just had no idea, but it was for a night shift. I had to find someone. So I looked at the places where people were washing ashore and I called all the yacht clubs and all the RSLs and all the bars to ask if there were any sailors who had been on those boats. And I found one. I found someone. (laughs) (laughs) like a whole pile of people just drinking in the bar. And I was just like, thank God I survived the first shift. I hope that every shift is not going to be as bad as this. But can you think of any examples where you had sort of an impossible task? This is perhaps a story where you can't get an interview with somebody, but that you can turn it into a story. And that is with the Australian Electoral Commission, we're running these remote voter services, both Uh, in communities, but also in town camps around Alice Springs. And I went along to a couple of them and were sort of speaking with some of the AEC team who was organizing it. And one of the guys who was running it was an Indigenous man. And he basically said, he's like, look, I can't speak to you unless I get permission from the AEC. But he was doing a really good job. And it was quite a different tone to what we'd seen when we were out in remote communities where they they were these all white teams running what was a pretty wild way of doing voting, very culturally insensitive. 
Anyway, AEC turned around and said, no, you're not allowed to interview this person because he's not media trained. It turned out that this particular person had done all sorts of stuff with the ABC. He'd been on Poe's cooking show and he'd also had his own cooking show on NITV and he was a university lecturer as well. So the story kind of became, by virtue of not being able to interview somebody, the story became the AEC is not letting their Indigenous employees speak to media. Why? That was the story that kind of came of an interview that fell through. So I guess it's just another way in which an angle can come from pursuing a conversation with somebody and trying to get that person on the record and all that jazz. What is your kind of, your way of pursuing interviewees? Do you call them up first or email first? And how often and how much do you follow up? It kind of depends on who you're speaking to. So if it's a government department or an expert or an official where media is effectively a part of their job description, then cold call away. I have no qualms about doing that. And you're basically calling up and you sort of, I would say, hello, my name's Julie Bergen. I'm the NT reporter for Crikey. I'm writing a story on X and I was wondering if you or, I guess, insert name here, if you're dealing with their media advisor, would be interested to talk about why. And usually they'll come back to you and say, please put that in an email. But it's always worth calling first because it flags it, draws it to their attention. And in that situation, I would give them, you know, a day or two if I still don't hear, a day rather, um, depends on when your deadline is. But if you still don't hear anything, just call them back again and kind of have no shame about continuously calling because there is an expectation with those sorts of people that they will that they will answer. You know, media is part of the game there. But I guess it's different if you're dealing with somebody who's got a story to tell you, you know, rather than having an opinion on an unfolding story like those government departments or experts. And in that situation, I would usually send a text message first, give them time to respond, then propose, you know, meeting up in person. And as I sort of said, people really, really value FaceTime. It just completely changes the tone of things. And yeah, then kind of see how it goes, take it from there and just be prepared to sort of foster that relationship. How much do you persist? If someone says they don't want to be interviewed, when do you push and when do you just kind of let it go? I'm persistent. (laughs) (laughs) I know you are persistent. That's why you work for us. I'm not great at taking no for an answer. (laughs) Uh, But there is merit in knowing when to pull the pin. But if there's one thing that I've learned up here, it's that time is a good thing. And that doesn't necessarily coincide with the deadlines that you might have as a reporter. But, you know, if you can have multiple stories on the go at the one time and then you can go back and revisit something, then that allows that time to kind of play out. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have a set answer for you in terms of a person tells you three times that they don't really want to do a story, then you have to listen. But more often than not, if a person is willing to speak to you three times and keep entertaining the idea of potentially doing a story for you, there's a small part of them that does want to tell that story. And so it's more on you to try and find out a way to facilitate a safe space for them to do that. And to, yeah, to show them that, you know, you're not going to throw them under the bus or that there is ways to protect sources that want to keep themselves out of the picture if they're the ones that have given you information. Um, And there's workarounds to that. You know, if you get information from a particular source, you can pitch that to a department or to somebody in a format where it doesn't jeopardize where the information has come from. And that's also part of it as well knowing 
which information you can use, which information you can't use, and where to draw that line. Now, you've done this subject that we're making this podcast for. If you can cast your mind back, what do you kind of wish that you had known when you were doing the subject? Do you have any advice for those students who are maybe doing a piece of journalism for the first time? I think for me, despite the fact that I love doing interviews, it was probably one of the things that I struggled with most. And it still proves to be a roadblock in stories when I can't figure out who I should speak to for a particular piece. I kind of have a roadblock and I can't see how that piece can kind of come to fruition. And I think it was a similar thing when I was doing that journalism subject as well. But I guess just knowing that, or just trying to be creative about the way that you can get different people to talk on a subject or talk around a subject, or perhaps sometimes the story is, and and this is a big part of Crikey as well, is because we're not a 24-hour news service. Often the stories that we do or the way that we present news is trying to find a fresh angle into a news story that, you know, might have been out for four hours or five hours or even close to to 24 because of the way that our publication timelines work. And that means that you do have to kind of do sometimes work around ways to get that angle or find that detail. And that means that you, you go to sources or you go to places that might have an adjacent way of seeing a particular topic. What you're basically saying is be, you know, don't be too rigid in your thinking of the yeah. story that you want to tell. You might find that, in fact, it's another story, <laughs> you know, or with a different interviewee, it's another story. Definitely, definitely. And I think sometimes, you know, the news hook that you have on a particular piece can go off in all different directions. The best example I have of this is I wrote this story on dingoes and the news hook was that there was new research that had come out looking at whether dingoes were purebreds or whether they were hybrid species with wild dogs. And basically, a lot of Australia's policy is directed towards the latter, where there's this assumption that they are very few purebred dingoes exist in Australia. And so based on that, there was this new research that come out that basically said, no, that's not the case at all. Most of Australia's dingo population is purebred. And I thought, okay, cool. That's my news hook, new research. But that's a particularly straight down the line story. What can we add to this? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, there's the political side of things where there's this discussion going on between pastoralists, what pastoralists think and what pastoralists want and what First Nations people, for example, want or what environmentalists want or what ecologists want. So I want to fold that in in some way, shape or form. So I'm going to go to a politician that has a track record of speaking on dingoes and see what they think. So I went to Marion Scrimshaw, who's the member for Lingiari, and got her opinion. So that was like one part of it. Then another part, I was like, all right, I'm going to speak to the researcher rather than just looking at trawling through the, the new research which has come out. And science is notoriously dense when you get a report that comes out. And so I had a conversation with her and I was like, tell me something that is not in your research. Why don't you tell me about how you even did this research? And so she started telling me all these grimy, nitty-gritty details about how she gets sent blood in the post, (laughs) animal blood in the post. She gets sent snipped off dingo ears. She's instructing people on how to preserve snipped off dingo ears. And I'm like, well, where do you find these dingo ears? And she goes, well, it turns out that you've got dingo trees and dingo fences in Australia. And so 
She then told me a story of how she commandeered her family holiday to track down one of these dingo trees and basically go and snip off all these ears so that she could use them for her <laughs> research. And then she said to me, actually, you should try and you should have a chat with one of our sort of citizen scientists who goes out on the road all the time in the middle of the night and is doing some of this research for me. So I'm like, all right, that sounds good. So I had a chat with that person. And then I was like, okay, I think I still need to explore the the First Nations angle. So I tracked down, because what does a dingo mean in that sense? So I tracked down somebody who's running the first dingo convention <laughs> in Queensland. So you've got all these different angles going into what is effectively could just be a really straight news story about, oh, new research released. And you get a very different story. And it's a much more fun story. It's a much more interesting story. Yeah, I guess that's just ways in which you can interrogate a subject to find different angles. And interviewees are your key to doing that. And finally, have you got two top tips you can offer to students about finding interviewees? If you, if you literally have nothing and you have no idea where to start, start with the topic and just call, look up a couple of organizations <laughs> that coincide with whatever that news story is and just ask them, even if you don't want to speak to them, ask them who you should speak to or who would be a good person to talk to on that particular matter. The other thing that you can do is, you know, go on something like, uh, Eventbrite, for example, and type in that topic and see if you can find an event that's been hosted or that is set to be hosted and who's going to be speaking at that. Or you can go through Twitter or Facebook and type in those kind of keywords about the topic that you're interested in and track them down. I remember doing that with you, Louisa, when we were trying to find people to speak to on internet shutdowns in various parts of the Middle East. I managed to track them down on Twitter using keyword search terms. Yeah, I know. I remember I did the same. I talked to a really interesting guy in Kashmir just because he'd been posting a, um, a lot about that. Yeah, so I think social media is definitely your friend when you're trying to find these things. And learning how to do kind of keyword search terms is a really handy thing just to start to know, you know, where to begin your research. And yeah, that's definitely one thing that's helped me a lot is being good at... Oh, yeah, being good at doing research can really help you find people to talk to. But yeah, at the same time, I wouldn't shy away from the fact of going out as well. I, I know often deadlines don't necessarily allow it, but if you can go and visit an organisation that looks like an alliance with a particular thing, show yourself in person and kind of go through that same process that you would over the phone or via email and be like, who do I speak to? Can you speak to me? Or do you have anybody within this organization who might be able to speak to me? Or, you know, if you're doing a story on, I don't know, I, I did actually, I did one piece uh, a, a long time ago on uh, when all of the stuff about Cardinal George Pell came out and needed to speak to victim survivors. So the sensitive way with which you have to go about doing that, you know, you approach the organizations and you say, do, do you have anybody who might be willing to speak to me? And they do that work for you in the sense that they're the ones who have the contacts. They're the ones who have the trusted relationships. They're going to reach out and see if people want to speak to you and then they'll come back to you. So it's kind of about also having trust in in the expert organizations and the expert people that you speak to that, that they'll be connected as well and uh, giving them good reason that they should trust you to pass on those connections, that sort of thing. Fantastic. And do you have an exercise that you could recommend? 
find a story reported in the news today and identify two additional interviewees. And you need to note their name, note which organization they represent, because where somebody is from is really important if you want to use them in a story. You have to basically justify why does this person's voice matter in this particular story. So who they are and where they're from is really important. And then you also want to have their contact details noted down as well, whether that's an email, whether that's a phone number, whether that's an organizational email, or whether it's simply you've reached out to them on social media, so it's their social media profile, that's also fine. But just some point of contact for those people. That was journalist Julia Bergen. The Masterclass is produced by Dylan Bird and myself. It's edited by Dylan Bird. Sound design and post-production by John Tiar. The original concept is by Anders Furs. The theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. It was partially funded by the GEM Scott Trust and it's brought to you from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne.